welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. This is John Murphy. It's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast Dr. Elizabeth Barton. Dr. Barton is a professor in the Department of Applied Physiology and Kinesiology in the College of Health and Human Performance at the University of Florida. So, Dr. Barton, welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. Thank you. It's good to be here. So, I know your interests are in muscle issues, both in terms of chronic and acute. Perhaps you can begin by telling us a little bit about your interests and some of your research. Sure. Yeah, the umbrella of my research is really muscle growth and repair. And under that umbrella, we look at both acute injury and trying to enhance repair from acute injury. But we also look at applying what we find in uh, acute injury to, to muscle disease, where in particular the muscular dystrophies have primary defects in many different unrelated genes, but the secondary consequence of those mutations are that there is a tendency for enhanced degeneration of muscle and cyclical regeneration of muscle. And so over time, that process sort of gets competed out by extensive fibrosis and and replacement of muscle by fat in this connective tissue. So I I know that uh, some of your you're interested in neuromuscular disease, but do you also address muscle damage by trauma? Yes, so we have a number of other models in the lab. We routinely use mouse models of skeletal muscle injury and, and repair. In some ways, you can use chemicals, such as snake venom is a classic one that many investigators have used to induce acute injury and then monitor the process of repair following that. So we use that routinely. We also have more applied types of models, one in which is a model of disuse atrophy, where we look at not only the impact of unloading muscle and something like you know for bed rest but also reloading muscle is also quite traumatic to muscle and so those two models we we use routinely as well to screen for ways and potential therapeutics that would enhance the repair process in both of those applications so perhaps you could elaborate a little bit on some of the repair strategies Sure. My lab has, for a number of years, looked at insulin-like growth factor 1, or IGF-1, and we have both basic and translational projects in that arena. IGF-1 is a a well-characterized agent for promoting muscle repair and muscle growth. However, trying to harness that reparative potential without invoking other sort of aberrant growth properties of of IGF-1 is what we've been trying to strive for. The other agents we've been looking at are in what's called the endoplasmic reticulum stress pathway or ER stress pathway, which happens very early in the stages of repair. And so if we can sort of suppress the heightened ER stress that happens during that time, we can overcome that transition, that stressful transition, and invoke uh, greater or a more accelerated repair. The other aspect we are looking at is looking more on how do you almost trick muscle into thinking that it's loaded. Uh, Load itself is something that is important for 
promoting or maintaining muscle mass. And so in some cases, such as like disuse atrophy or any kind of traumatic injury, there's no real load or appropriate load signaling going on. And so we have now have a new project on looking at what those load sensors are and how we can, again, increase them to be appropriate signals for load to maintain muscle mass and rather than cause aberrant signaling in those pathways. So this uh, technique of loading muscle seems to be pretty important because we've had some other guests on this podcast series in the past and they talk about, for example, tissue engineering to repair disease or damaged muscle. And they, they stress the fact that loading is a very important factor in this regard. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You're finding the same, same. Yes, absolutely. It's a really a critical factor. In fact, even for our IGF-1 work, without load, the IGF-1 pathway is essentially shut down. And so if if we're trying to use that as a way of preventing a loss of muscle mass, then we really need to combine that with appropriate load sensoring to maintain that mass. So that's why we're going after this load sensing as well, more in a way, uh, more biochemically as opposed to physically. So in the case of neuromuscular disease, if we have non-functional muscle or semi-non-functional muscle, the loading probably has to be by external stimulus as opposed to by the patient exercising him or herself, is that correct? It well depends on the depends on the disease. There is now some work looking at how different exercise modalities can actually help with neuromuscular disease. You're absolutely right that particularly in the most well-characterized one in Duchenne muscular dystrophy, the muscle is very fragile. And so if you do load it, you basically break it. And so that breakage or fragility gets in the way of enabling the muscle growth pathways to be intact. But now there are groups, not mine, but groups looking at how movement, passive movement, and, and that kind of exercise modality can trigger the load signaling just enough to maintain the muscle in a sort of quasi-healthy state. So where are we in terms of the state of the art? For some of our listeners who have interest in outcomes, when might some of these technologies be available, at least from a clinical trial perspective? In terms of the dystrophies, there are currently several clinical trials going on to do a genetic correction of Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Those are ongoing. They have been uh, fraught with a lot of controversy, but they are—they have taken about at least 10 years to get to this phase three clinical trials. For the standpoint of our technology right now, we have one that we could envision being at least under trial within the next five to 10 years. So we're looking at that kind of timeline. Other agents are in a faster track. Those that, for instance, repurposing approved compounds, and so they would have a greater potential to get there within five years. So these are for neuromuscular issues or for trauma? They would be for both. The neuromuscular disease community provides a platform and an arena where the FDA is is looking quite closely at trying to promote or you know find approvable agents. 
in the terms of acute injury or trauma, those agents could be readily applied to healthy people that have the unfortunate circumstance of trauma, but they could be used quickly and transiently to improve muscle repair and rebuilding in a way that would be potentially fast-tracked. Very interesting. So, Dr. Barton, uh, in terms of these agents that you're using, how do they deliver to the site of repair? So, we have used recombinant virus technology for a number of years to deliver our agents directly to muscle. The advantages of recombinant adeno-associated virus is that it lacks any viral genes, but we harness the power of the transduction of muscle through the coat of the virus. So it's almost like a Trojan horse in that the virus itself enables entry into the cell and releases the contents, which are the transgene of interest. The viral technology has really progressed in the last few decades where we now have recombinant viruses that have very high efficient tropism for muscle and efficient uptake in muscle and rapid turning on of the transgenes. So that becomes a really attractive approach to delivering these agents. The downside of viral technology is that once that viral package is in muscle, as long as that muscle cell or muscle fiber is there, that virus is there. And so there's a lot of concern that a permanent virus inside your body is not necessarily a great thing. So we're looking at safety measures for that. So how do you determine where these viruses go? They go through the entire body or can they be directed toward the area of So you can do direct injection into the target tissue. So for instance, if there's a traumatic injury, you could target directly to the area where the trauma has occurred. One can deliver systemically, either intravenously or interperitoneally, I would guess, in a human. But if you injected this intravenously, it would go throughout the body but one can restrict the expression of these viruses through muscle-specific promoters or ways to restrict the expression only to skeletal muscle. So that becomes an important way of doing this. So that, you know, you have these two ways of doing it, systemically or direct injection, but with restriction of the expression of your transgene only to that tissue of interest. So it would be all skeletal muscle, but regardless of where it was in the the body. If you did systemically, yeah. So that kind of strategy would work great for neuromuscular disease where you'd have that mutation everywhere. You'd want to deliver it everywhere. But again, if you had a a local injury, then you could target just right to the tissue itself. So is this technique applicable to other diseases? Absolutely, yes, absolutely. It's being considered for pulmonary disease, liver disease, even in neural diseases that one can consider this technology for. So Dr. Barton, are there other technologies that might be applicable for these particular types of therapies? Yes, well, we're very excited right now by the potential of a plant-based system for delivering therapeutic proteins. In a collaboration with Henry Daniel at University of Pennsylvania, we have developed a plant that expresses human IGF-1 within the chloroplast of these plants. 
And this is a technology he has developed over the last probably two decades where the human protein is within the chloroplast genome. One can ingest or take this plant. You can just basically eat the plant, and it is protected. The transgene is protected until it gets to the gut, and the gut itself can absorb this therapeutic protein into the bloodstream and allow this therapeutic protein to enter the circulation and then provide this therapeutic protein to the body. The disadvantage is that it is systemic. The advantage is that it is an orally bioavailable strategy. It's transient, so for something like traumatic injury, you wouldn't have the permanent viral uh, genome within the body. You would just basically ingest it when you need it and then stop when you don't. So this would be in your salad, so to speak? <laughs> yeah, that we actually are using lettuces to express these transgenes, yeah. Very fascinating. <laughs> Dr. Barton, I want to thank you for joining us today and sharing with us these pioneering studies that offer much promise to treat a number of particular ailments. And we will list on the podcast website Dr. Barton's page, so if you want to explore this work in more detail, to be able to do that. Until we meet again on another Regenerative Medicine podcast, I'd like to thank our listeners for joining. We thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine, who sponsors this podcast series, and thank our listeners. Have a good day.